Okay, hey, well, good morning. Welcome to Echo Church. Hey, uh, last weekend was a really big one for my alma mater, and this has nothing to do with sports, but uh, at the University of Kentucky, there's this annual event that takes place about this time of year, and basically the whole campus and the whole town kind of shuts down for it. It's amazing. Basketball can't even do this. The weekend, last weekend, was called Dance Blue. Dance Blue. It's a 24-hour dance marathon that raises money for, for childhood cancer research. So for, for 24 consecutive hours, 900 people or so come together for a no-sitting, no-sleeping 24-hour dance marathon. It's held in the heart of UK's campus. So the actual event lasts about 24 hours, but there's a whole year of preparation that goes before it. They're probably already starting to plan for the 2018 Dance Blue. But it's amazing. It's an amazing experience. Words don't quite do it justice. So check out this short clip. Campus United for the Kids. We dance blue to unite the University of Kentucky to impact children across the Commonwealth who have been affected by childhood cancer. Dance Blue is one campus united for the kids. There ain't a reason you and me should be alone tonight. Yeah, baby, tonight, yeah, baby. Looks like fun, right? It really is for an hour or two. When, when I was a student, uh, I was able to raise some money and participate in this thing. And I remember all the preparation involved. It was drink a ton of water before. This is not a time to buy new shoes. Wear your broken in tennis shoes. You pack a duffel bag with about four changes of clothes. And every six or so hours, you take what's called a, a sink shower. And you try to freshen up a little bit. The way it starts is everybody packs in the Memorial Coliseum. They're sitting on the floor, this hard, uncomfortable gym floor. And at 7 o'clock, the horn goes off. Everybody stands. And at that point, it, it doesn't take long for you to look back at that hard floor and say, wow, I really wish I could have a seat on it. Um, then there's the actual dance marathon. It's, it's set up to basically do everything possible to try to keep you moving, keep you motivated. So every hour, there's a new theme. There was a beach hour. So Kenny Chesney, Jimmy Buffett, everybody gets a, a lay. There's a beach balls going on. Uh, for 90s hour, we listened to a lot of Smash Mouth, Spin Doctors. I think we were drinking Capri Sun and we were throwing yo-yos. For Harry Potter hour, this is a good one. Everyone wore wizard hats and we actually played a huge game of Quidditch right there in the middle. Uh, but, but church, the best hour, objectively, right, was Honky Tonk hour. It was. And this song up here, I think that was Lady Gaga. That's not really my jam. But... Classic country, banjo music, this, this is the kind of stuff, I'll cut a rug, I'm not scared. So I was actually part of the team that got to stand up and teach everyone how to line dance, and maybe that's where my life peaked. But the, the catchy themes for Dance Blue, they only did so much. At, at a certain point, you, you realize, gosh, I got to keep pushing, got to stay awake. So what do they do? They feed you, and they feed you, and they feed you, and they feed you. Every four or so hours, you're eating something else. So, so 10 o'clock at night, you've got Chipotle. 2 a.m., Papa John's. 6 in the morning, Chick-fil-A. This sounds good, doesn't it? It's not. It's not as good as it sounds. This was called a marathon, dance marathon. The word marathon suggests calorie burner. 
I didn't lose any weight doing Dance Blue at all because it was buffet-style unlimited eating. So by the 12-hour mark, it's about 7 a.m., and you can see in the windows the sun's starting to come up, and it's the most demoralizing thing because the thought comes across your mind, I'm halfway done. (laughs) What is this? I can't feel my feet. So the football team comes in before they go to practice. Coach gives you a pep talk. It'll get you for another hour or so. And then noon hits, and you got about seven more, and you hear a voice on the microphone, and it's, it's Coach John Calipari in the rafters, and he's got the basketball team with him, and that'll get you going for another few hours. Then the wall hits, and, and you're like, I am so tired of this. I smell. I, I can't feel my feet anymore. I just want to go home. And then the monitor comes on on the video screen, and you see a mother, and she talks about her son whom she lost. And Dance Blue was his favorite event in the year and she cries and you cry and you stop complaining and you keep on moving and then the last hour they let all the kids come in maybe you saw that in the video all the kids from the marquee cancer center came in a lot of them had lost their hair a lot of them were in wheelchairs and they're smiling and you realize why you signed up for this and you see their faces and you see their parents faces and then you see the names scrolling on the screen of the kids who couldn't be there, of the kids that we lost. And you realize, I could do 24 more of these. I could stand all, all day. I could stand for eternity because a lot of kids couldn't stand at all. So Dance Blue at Kentucky this year raised $1.7 million, which is great, and in, in, in their existence have raised almost $10 million. It's, it's awesome. They were founded in 2005 this organization, which is a great year to start an organization, wasn't it, Echo? Our current series is called Dwell. And Dwell, the theme of Dwell is the same as the theme for Dance Blue, and that's stay awake. Stay awake. Don't take life for granted. God is everywhere. He's all around us. He wants us to live as people who are aware of this gift, his presence. He dwells with us. So last week, uh, y'all welcomed my friend. We had a guest teacher. Eric came and talked to us about how we can see God in unexpected postures. He talked about the posture of action, where the Roman centurion had a servant who'd been paralyzed, and he didn't stand around. He ran straight to Jesus and called on him, and Jesus healed him. The posture of waiting. talked about Moses and how Moses saw the burning bush. And as he was looking at it, he noticed that it wasn't being consumed, so he approached it, and that's where God spoke to him and said, got a plan for the Israelites taking you out of Egypt. The posture of presence. That story of Jesus showing up to uh, Mary and Martha. And Martha's preoccupied, making all these preparations, cleaning. And then we see Mary, she realizes the significance of the moment. That she was in Jesus' presence. So she, she falls to his feet. Because she knows that there's no possible thing that could be more important than Jesus' presence right here, right now. That is what dwell is. And this morning we're going to build on that. We looked at, at the unexpected postures. We're going to talk unexpected people today. Before we go, let's, let's pray. God, we are, we are thankful for this space. We're thankful for this community, for our brothers and sisters here. God, we thank you for the people who, who aren't here today, and we thank you for your, your church all over the world united to worship you. What we're asking for, God, is that you would train us to see you in the moments in between that you would help us stay awake to your presence. What a gift it is. So give us a new piece of you today. 
Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the text we're studying this morning comes from John chapter 8. Before we go into it, I want to give you a little context. You probably have heard this story if you've been in church for a little bit. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. But you'll probably notice in this passage, it's actually 757 in the Blue Bible, is there's a little note there, or maybe in your Bible it's in italics or it's a footnote or something. That's because the evidence we have had for some time suggests that this passage, this pericope, was not part of John's original written gospel. There's a few reasons. This story is, is actually missing from all the earliest Greek manuscripts. Also, many of the early church fathers omit this passage, and they actually go from 752 to 812. And if you look at it and you remove this from this part of John, it actually makes a lot more sense. It flows so much nicer. The third thing is, when this passage does begin to appear in some of the manuscripts throughout history, it's in different places. We see it here in this spot in John, a few other spots in John. It's also found in the Gospel of Luke. And then finally, the style and the vocabulary used here for this, for this passage is markedly different from the other language, the, the style that's used throughout the rest of John. If you were to say, what's the passage that doesn't look like the others? It's this one. So these are the, some, of the, some of the reasons why scholars think that this probably isn't in John's original autograph, in his written autograph. And, and kind of a, a side note about textual criticism, I don't want to spend too much time on this on a Sunday morning, but if you, if you know that all the, the historical documents in antiquity, all the famous pieces that we learn about in, in history, none of them actually compare to the New Testament. It completely blows them out of the water for this secular scientific test. Nothing comes close. And specifically in about three categories uh, that, are really, that really stand out. Number one, number of copies, the sheer number of copies and fragments of copies that we have for the New Testament is far and away more than these other documents from around the same first century time period. Um, the reliability. So we have all these copies and we look across, they're, they're, they're all the same. There's not a lot of conflict there at all. And then finally, the thing that I think is most fascinating is the time between the, when the original was written and the earliest manuscripts that we have is so small, so, so small with the New Testament compared to other works. It, it is it's absolutely incredible. So works by Homer and Caesar and Tacitus and other first century um, authors, we have maybe two or we have 12 or a few dozen copies of, of their works. And we, these copies, they come from year 400, year 900, maybe a thousand years after they were written. So that's, that's good. But the New Testament, we have thousands of copies of these ancient manuscripts, thousands of them or the fragments of them. And they come from when? The same lifetime as the people who wrote them. 30 and 40 years, some of the earliest manuscripts come. I mean, in the same lifetime as Paul actually taking pen to paper to his letters. This is amazing. It's incredible how God's providence worked through that. But another great implication of this fact, of this, how the New Testament sets the bar for textual criticism, is that we can say with pretty great certainty what belongs and what doesn't quite fit. So, this group are a do- of a dozen or so verses that we're looking at today. That's why we can say that it doesn't appear they, that they're in the original written gospel of John. So then, what are we doing with it? How should we treat it? That's the question. Well, here's the thing. Those same scholars that say, yeah, this probably isn't part of the original written, those same men and women are the ones that say, 
look, we have every reason to believe that what we're reading here is recorded exactly how it happened. They, that, that's almost unanimous. This story has all the earmarks of, of all the stories written in the Gospels. The early church loved this thing so much that they preserved it throughout history an incredible length of time. So this story of Jesus is one that was witnessed by many people and it was kept and told over and over and over again. It's deeply ingrained in our rich oral tradition for the church. It was intertwined so deeply with the Gospels that we have it today and there's so, so much value in it. And I thank God that we have it. This story has more than one amazing thing to tell us. So, so we'll get into it. Uh, we're going to start John chapter 8, verse 2, and we'll go about halfway through 6, ending on the word him. So Kaylin's reading for us this morning. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. Yes. So do you see this? This was a blatant test. The Pharisees were going right after Jesus. They wanted to entrap him. A blatant test. Just like we've seen in, in throughout the rest of the Gospels. They weren't seeking Jesus' counsel. They were trying to trip him up. And really he was left with two really equally maybe unfortunate options. He didn't have a lot of choice here. It was number one, let's allow this woman to go free and basically disregard what the law of Moses says. So go against the Torah. Or number two, basically approve of this killing, endorse it, and forfeit his relationship he built with sinners. Also probably be in trouble with the Roman government because when they were faced with capital punishment, it had to be endorsed by the Roman government. Neither one of these. You go against the law of Moses, you go against the Roman government. Or so it appeared. So let's look at this. The Pharisees said that in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Is that really how it's written? We have to investigate. The first place this appears in, is in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. It says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. All right, the second place this appears is Leviticus 20, verse 10. And it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to, put to death. Something's not right here. There's something fishy. Where is the man in this story? Where's the man? They only have the woman. See, these men, these Pharisees, they don't love the law. They hate Jesus. They're not law keepers. They're out to trip up Jesus. There's no biblical precedent for adultery with one person. They don't care. Where is the man? They want Jesus to slip up and contradict the law. But Jesus knows this. This is not his first rodeo. He'd been tested by these guys before. And we've seen it plenty of times. Matthew 12. Y'all remember this story. The disciples were picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see it and they come up to Jesus and they say, look at your disciples out there, you know, breaking the law. And what does Jesus say to them? He, he says, go learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea using the very, as you could say, weapon that the Pharisees are using against him, the Old Testament, putting them right in their place. Again, midway through John 7, same book. 
Jesus was teaching during the festival of tabernacles, and a fringe group of Jewish elites started accusing him, saying, you're demon-possessed, and you're crazy, and saying that he was a deceiver of people. They were trying to get him riled up. And earlier, we see them accusing him of being a, a lawbreaker because he was healing a man on the Sabbath. Miraculously, healing a man was considered work in their eyes. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus does the same thing here. He points out their hypocrisy. He says, you hypocrites, you circumcised baby on the Sabbath because it's the eighth day. Well, that's work. But you're looking at me, you're angry at me because I do the work of healing a whole man's body so that he can live. See, this is militant legalism. This is not why God gave us the law. The Pharisees were all about using the letter of the law to convict. It's really about the spirit here. So back to our passage here. The Pharisees come and they present this woman caught in adultery. And they, they, they want to publicly humiliate her and essentially throw Jesus in a corner and make him make a poor decision. And by the way, do y'all know, know what stoning looked like in the first century? This wasn't like ancient dodgeball. This was, let's bury this person halfway to, up to their body and from point blank range take massive stones with the person's hand behind their back and blunt force trauma till they're dead. It was gruesome, awful stuff. And if Jesus orders this to be done to this woman, who's to say that the Roman government won't have at least an equally miserable punishment for him? We, we don't know, but let's see what Jesus does. Kaylin, can you pick up uh, midway through verse 6, beginning with the word but, and all the way through verse 8. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Yeah, Jesus was writing on the ground. What was this about? Well, the answer is we don't actually know. We don't know. It's not in the, it's not in the story. We, we have to think that if it was important, that significant component, it would be there. We have to think that. There's speculation about what, that, what Jesus might have been writing, but it, it's just that, speculation. So we're going we're gonna to leave that there. Did you notice, though, how Jesus put the Pharisees in their place? He was proficient in this skill. Every single time they tried to trip him up, he got out of it brilliantly. How could they not have learned by now? How could they not have learned? The text says they kept questioning him. Questioning him. I imagine this group of Pharisees, these self-righteous bunch, coming around Jesus, surrounding him, thinking— we got him this time. We got him this time. There's no way he's getting out of this. See, there's, there's something in us. Well, I won't, I won't speak for you. There's something in me that when I see somebody who's arrogant, who's self-righteous, somebody who's placed himself on a pedestal, when I see somebody like that get a dose of humility, I kind of like it. Until it's me, right? Until it's me who gets the dose of humility. Y'all who've been in my house before, maybe you've heard me talk um, about this guy. I'm a big Muhammad Ali fan. Uh, the greatest boxer ever, the greatest of all time. But let's be real about Ali for a second. The guy had a mouth, didn't he? It was a good thing he was a good boxer because his mouth was, was writing checks. So as good of a boxer as he was, they called him the Louisville Lip because the guy just talked and talked. He never, Ali never won a belt or a trophy for humility ever. And this is a guy, I'm going to give you a few quotes here from Ali. If you ever dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. Ali said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. And my favorite is this about another boxer. Ali said, Sonny listens too ugly to be the world champ. The world champ should be pretty like me. 
because boxers' faces are pretty, yes. And that, that was his personality. He was the greatest, and he knew it. And there's this, there's this true story. Maybe you've heard this. Ali was on a flight one time. He was on a flight, and this was 80s or, or something like that. The pilot comes on the intercom, and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, prepare for moderate turbulence. We're entering into some weather. I mean, everyone needs to fasten your seatbelts. You know when a pilot comes on to tell you that we're going to enter moderate turbulence? <laughs> you better buckle because uh, if, it's, if it's worth announcing, then it's coming. So the flight attendants were making their checks, making sure everybody's situated and, and fastened. And it even gave the champ a little bit extra time because he's a little arrogant. We know that. But he didn't, he didn't fasten his seatbelt. And the flight attendant walks up to Ali and she says, Sir, please fasten your seatbelt. We're, we're going to be experiencing some turbulence. And Ali famously says back to her, he says, Ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly, with this quip, comes back, love this, and she says, Mr. Ali, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Click, seatbelt fastened. Even the world heavyweight champion needs a dose of humility every once in a while. These self-righteous Pharisees, they needed it often. And Jesus was the perfect person to do it. Please read. So we're going to finish it off here, beginning with verse 9 all the way through 11. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one commended you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Um, Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life and li- leave your life of sin. Perfect. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Was it neither do I condemn you because adultery is not that bad? No. Was it neither do I condemn you because the choices that you make in life don't don't really matter? No, no, it wasn't. It was neither do I condemn you, and now go, turn away from this life of sin. Sin no more. Jesus says the same thing in John 5. Remember the man he healed by the pool? This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus comes up to him and says, take up your mat and walk. And he did that. And what did Jesus say when he turned him away? He said, sin no more. This story is not about Jesus turning his head and saying, yeah, adultery is wrong, but I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. Jesus, in all his genius, what he did was he agreed with the law in principle while also undermining it in practice. Agreed with it in principle, undermined it in practice. Yes, adulterers should be stoned. You deserve punishment. Therefore, here's where he undermines it. Go ahead, fire away. Whichever one of you is sinless, let's have at it. He knew every single person there fell short of the law. He knew that. This is a story about Jesus saying to a woman, about Jesus saying to you and me, saying, my friend, you have messed up. You've rebelled against the person, against the man or the woman that God has made you to be. You've rebelled against your creator. But because I love you, because I have compassion for you, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to reestablish righteousness on a foundation of grace. I give you grace. Now go and live like someone who's been given this gift. Let go of the sins that are holding you down. Accept my 
gift of grace and sin no more. That's what he's saying. Who, who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? I've been the, the woman in this story before. I've been both a man rebel, of rebelling against God, someone who deserves punishment, probably publicly, and then someone who's been offered grace. I've experienced that. But more often than the woman in this story, I'm the Pharisee. Maybe I don't publicly condemn people, but in my mind, it's just as well in my heart to judge people, to condemn them, to look at, at you. Believe it or not, I don't discriminate, to say that I see your disobedience. I see it. And you know what God's saying to me right there? You know, the same thing he's saying to the Pharisees. He's saying, just as much as this woman, this sinner is guilty, you're at least as guilty. You need judgment just as much. In this story, Jesus did something significant. He exalted himself above the law. He exalted himself above the law. He didn't refute it at all, but he he reestablished righteousness on the foundation of grace. And he was with this sinner, he's with us, the entire time. So when she's standing there awaiting probably her impending death, a gruesome death, certain she would die, Jesus was there. And then when he turned the Pharisees away brilliantly, and she's probably broken there, sobbing, trying to accept this forgiveness, Jesus is there. His love escapes no one. So when the Pharisees scolded Jesus for hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners of all kinds, when they scolded him, do you remember Jesus' response? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And frankly, I don't, I don't believe any of us are truly well. We all have our ailments. One more thing here. Have you heard of a, have you heard of a man named Thornton Wilder? Thornton Wilder. In 1938, Wilder wrote a, a play which became one of the most popular plays in American history. It's called Our Town. Our Town. Some of you have seen, uh, know what I'm talking about. Our Town is a three-act play, and it's been produced over and over again for film and radio and television. Wilder actually won the Pulitzer Prize in 1938 for this. And Our Town takes place in a, in a fictional spot called Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, around the year 1900. And as I started watching this play... I realized this is about nothing. <laughs> there's, no, there's no plot. There's nothing going on here. Not like in the way Seinfeld is about nothing, but even worse. There's nothing happening here. Uh, and it's as, if, it's as if Wilder wants you to know that, that this play is about nothing, that there's no plot. On top of that, there are no props. So you're watching this play, and as people are doing house chores, or you see kids out there playing, playing ball, it's, it's like mimes. They don't have... So it's meant to be very minimalist. They have imaginary props. There's no plot. This is an absolutely no-frills play. So you've got this small kind of no-name town. And the narrator takes a solid 10 minutes at the very beginning introducing things like, this is Grover's Corners, and here's the general store, and this is the doctor, and the cobbler, and this is the paper mill. And he starts introducing these generic American families, nothing distinguishable about any of them. There are five churches in Grover's Corners, and this is the Methodist Church, and the Presbyterian, the Baptist, Anglican, and so and so on. And he goes into introducing some of the characters. Again, no surprises, nothing out of the ordinary. The main character is a girl named Emily. And for the first two-thirds, this is a three-act play, for the first two acts, nothing happens with her. It's like she, she grows up, she, she goes to school, she helps her mom with chores. 
and she takes a love interest in the boy next door because she's helping tutor him so he can get through school. His name's George. End of act one. That's it. You're just kind of waiting. Act two comes. It's more the same. They start to grow up. Emily and George really fall in love. I think the last scene in act two was, was they got married, and that was it. And you're like, two-thirds of the way done. How am I still watching this? What's going on? Act three comes, and that's where it really starts going. We're at the cemetery here. The narrator tells you that Emily died. She died in childbirth. She left her, her, her husband, George, and then her four-year-old son. And, and there you are in the cemetery. And she, she's among about a dozen other spirits, people who'd passed. And she's uneasy. She feels terrible. She's watching the funeral procession. She's watching her own burial. She's watching all of her friends and family mourn about her death. So when everyone leaves the cemetery, Emily, she, she longs to go with them. She says, all I want is just one more day. Just give me one more day. The other spirits are there in the cemetery trying to dissuade her, saying, Emily, don't. You don't want this. Uh, this is your existence now. You've got to let all that go. Your life is gone. Just get used to this. If you go back, you're going to regret it. It's going to be a huge, huge mistake. Emily doesn't listen. She chooses to go back to revisit one day in her life. And this is where this, the scene opens up. It's, uh, it's her 12th birthday, and she's sort of observing everything that's going on as a spirit. And it's a typical Grover's Corners morning. There's nothing special going on. There, there are some men outside drinking coffee and having a conversation. She can smell the, the sweet aroma of her mom making breakfast. She, she sees the birds chirping in the butternut trees outside of her house. And as Emily watches this day, not too different from any other day that she's ever experienced, she notices something for the first time. Just how precious and how beautiful life is. She, she can't take it anymore. She goes back to the cemetery, devastated at what she just discovered. And the famous quote from this play, the last thing Emily says, she says, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? This play wasn't about nothing. This play was about everything. This play was about everything. Dwell is our wake-up call. I'm going to keep on saying that. Life is precious and it's invaluable for two reasons. God gave it to us. And he dwells with us right here, right now. Our marching orders are the same. Stay awake. Look for him. Look for his fingerprints in unexpected postures and unexpected people. Of course it's the big days that we, that we remember we feel God's presence. The graduations, the weddings, the birth of the children, the day we conquered the fear. Um, the days where our prayers were answered. But the real wonder of God's presence comes out in the days that we slowly slowly let slip away. Not so much the big ones, but the moments in between. It's his presence in every single moment. The fact that he dwells with us on a still Sunday afternoon. That's what makes every moment matter. Because God's here. Now we pray. God, we thank you for our wake-up call. God, we're, we're begging you, please don't let us sleep through this life. Please help us see you in every moment because there's not one second. We cannot run from you, Lord. You're everywhere. No one escapes. Your presence and your love is here. Help us to soak that fact in every moment. Wake us up. Take us to new places with this as we begin to close out this series next week and, 
and guide us as a church, but also individually and in our families and in our homes. We ask this in in the name of Jesus. Amen.